not supposed to be making choices for themselves. They're supposed to be walking in the covenant and the word that God has set forth for them. But they are making their own choices, and these choices are taking them farther and farther away from God. Choices that, are, uh, that they're free to make. Again, Jabin was free to make those choices. We are free to make choices. But we must be prepared to deal with the consequence of that choice. As we look at our text this morning, I want to point our hearts to three things, fault failure, and faithfulness. I want to challenge us to feel the weight of our fault as God lays his case out against Israel. I want to challenge us to see our own failure as the priest and the people reject God. And I want to challenge us to cling to the faithfulness of God as we see him moving to bring Israel back to himself. Fault, failure, faithfulness. Chapters 1 through 3, and uh, I use Hosea's marriage as a parable, if you will, an illustration for the current state of the relationship between God and Israel. The picture is vividly painted for us of Israel as an unfaithful wife and of God as a loving husband who is unrelenting in his efforts to win her and to see her as a kept woman. Moving into chapter 4, the imagery goes away and we are faced with God's striking indictment against Israel. This is a heavy, heavy charge, a heavy case. The ESV says controversy, so a heavy controversy that God has against Israel. And I, I want us to feel the weight. I want us to feel the weight of the charge, the, the weight of the case, the weight of the controversy. Because our failure to properly weigh our fault cheapens his faithfulness and puts us in danger of falling back into the pattern that we see Israel in time and time again. The very place where we see Israel now in Hosea, the place where they have forgotten God, forgotten God's law, and by default forgotten who they're supposed to be as God's people. Look with me at a Hosea Chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Again, we move from parable just being given a picture that we get in Hosea 1 through 3 to now he's speaking directly against them. Speaking to the issues of infidelity on the count of Israel. Here, O Israel, the Lord has a controversy with you. CSB says again, the Lord has a charge against you. As you read through the, the, the text, especially with the transition from one through three going into four, it feels very much like divorce proceedings. Where one is giving reason of why a husband should lawfully be released from the contract or covenant made with his wife. The Lord has a charge. We have a case. The Lord has a case against you. Verse 1 tells us that there are problems in the relationship, and it tells us what the problems are. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Here's the charge. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. 
Two problems the Lord gives as a charge against Israel. Two reasons that could uh, uh, bring this covenant relationship between God and Israel to an end. No faithful and steadfast love. No knowledge of God. Charge number one, no faithfulness and no steadfast love. Some might say Israel don't know how to keep her feet in her own house. In other words, there's no exclusivity. They strayed from their vows. It's supposed to be, I will be your God and you will be my people. As the covenant was spoken in Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, the God who gave you water from a rock and bread from heaven. The agreement was that I would be your God and you would be my people. But as they live, they seek pleasure, they seek their provision, they seek their provision outside of God rather than in God. Hosea 1 and 2 saying, for the Lord commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. As Gomer sought and found comfort in the arms of a man who wasn't her husband, so Israel has sought and found comfort in the arms of gods who are not their God. Hosea 4 and 12 says, My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. This isn't the faithful and steadfast love Hosea hoped for in Gomer. And it's certainly not the faithful and steadfast love that God hoped for in Israel. How do we know this? Exodus 20, verse 5, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He wanted exclusivity from Israel. Faithful and steadfast love. Charge number two, there's no knowledge of God. To know God or be known by God here means intimacy. It speaks of intimacy. But there was no intimacy between uh, uh, God and Israel because there was no faithful and steadfast love between God and Israel. Hosea 4.10 tells us, For the people abandoned their devotion to God. Promiscuity took the place of the intimacy God expected, the intimacy that God deserves. Remember, God is not the one who changed the dynamics of the relationship, right? Scripture says, I am the Lord, I change not. Right? Hosea and Gomer gives us a parable, a picture for our learning of what's taking place between God and Israel. Hosea was a faithful husband to a woman who consistently left their marriage bed to leap into the bed of other lovers. Likewise, Israel has left the sanctity of the covenant relationship that they had with God in exchange for intimacy with idols. Their walking staff gives them oracles. And as a result, God has become a stranger to them, or rather, they've become a stranger to God. Hosea 5 and 3 says, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. There is no knowledge of God, no steadfast love. No exclusivity, no intimacy. 
These are the charges against Israel. They have not honored the covenant. Is there any evidence of these charges? Hosea 2, excuse me, Hosea 4, verse 2. There is lying, excuse me, there is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing of adultery. Does any of that sound familiar? If you go back to Exodus 20, there are 10 commandments that God gives to Israel, a covenant as he was making this covenant with them. And here they have broken all bonds. Scripture says, bloodshed follows bloodshed, thou shalt not murder. Verse 3, therefore the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Wherever there is a disregard for God's law, there are no boundaries. There's nothing that you won't do or that we won't do if we remove the, the, the restraints of God's law. Israel has lost its moral compass. The very people whom God made his covenant that he would be their God, that they would be his treasured possession among all peoples to be uh, to him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation are now characterized as people who will lie to you, cuss you out, sleep with your husband or your wife, steal from you, and kill you. This is a people who, who don't know God. And it shows that they don't know God. But it doesn't just show up in their lives, right? Verse 3, he says, the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. The land, the people are suffering because of Israel's disobedience. Have we seen this before? Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, and to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat, cursed is the ground because of you. God's law was broken, but it wasn't just Adam and Eve who suffered. The land suffered. Cursed is the ground because of you. But even as cursing follows disobedience, blessing follows obedience. It goes both ways, right? Genesis 22:15, and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall uh, uh, possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Family, the reward of your choice to obey and the consequences of your choice to disobey extend beyond you. Amen. The charge is against Israel. The fault is with Israel. But everybody feels the weight of their choice. Do we feel the weight of our fault? When our lives are contrary to God, do we feel the weight of that? Look with me at Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. 
Word of the Lord says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. I want to take a moment to kind of quantify the difference between what we're calling fault and failure this morning. Because none among us are perfect, right? All of us miss the mark. All of us have faults, but God has made provision for our faults. Fault becomes failure when we ignore God and God's provision for our faults. To reject knowledge here is a willful and intentional disregard for the instruction of God and the provision he has made for our faults. Again, to talk about my son. And again, for those of you who have older kids, you may have experienced this. There was a point in Jabin's life where almost every bit of instruction his mom and I tried to give him was met with the response, I know. Anybody ever been there? Hey, son, when you do this, I know. Hey, son, don't forget, I know. Didn't matter what we said. Every response was, I know. This was not Jabin affirming and agreeing with our instruction. This was Jabin in defiance of our instruction. This was Jabin saying, I know what's best, mom, dad. And this is Israel in this moment. Even in our fault, though, God is still giving instruction. Hear the words of Hosea to Gomer and of God to Israel in Hosea 3. This is after Hosea has uh, uh, redeemed his wife and brought her up out of slavery, even as God did with Israel out of Egypt. Verse 2, he says, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and nine bushels of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to any other man. So will I also be to you. For the Lord, excuse me, for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in to fear the Lord and to his goodness. In the latter days, God is making provision for their fault. Even though they reject instruction, he still gives instruction, right? But God is rejecting not just the instruction, they're rejecting the provision. Defiantly declaring that they know us best. Israel is not, Israel is not only being stubborn, Israel is being rebellious. Hosea chapter 8, 1 says, Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord. Because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. What What do vultures typically hover over? Things that are dead. Things that are dying. Gives you a picture of where Israel is right now. Hosea 11 says, my people are bent on turning away from me. Now, this goes far beyond missing the mark. Israel is drawing a line in the sand here, saying, God, you will not rule over me. So how does God respond to their failure? How does God respond to their choice to reject knowledge rather than to receive knowledge? 
how does he respond to them rejecting him? Rejecting knowing God even as they are known by God. Hosea 6 again. He says, because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. Remember, family, the reward of your choice to obey God and the consequences of your choice to disobey God extend beyond you. Hear the word of the Lord in Deuteronomy 28. This is the blessing of obedience. He says, if you are careful to do all the commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all of these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall be you in the city, blessed shall you be in the field, blessed shall be your, uh, excuse me, the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in. Blessed shall you be when you come out. Conversely is also true. Verse 16, we see, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God and be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I commanded you this day, then all of these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. For their failure, for their rejection, it costs them. It cost them big. It cost them their position. Hosea 4, 6 says, I will reject you from being a priest to me. It's a privilege to come before the Lord, to minister to him. Even for us to come here on a Sunday morning, to lift our hands and our hearts in worship, to be received by God, it's a privilege. One that God can remove. He says, I reject you from being a priest to me. It cost him his presence. And that's the most important thing. We can come in here Sunday after Sunday and, and stay as long as we want and shout as long as we want. And if you recall the time when, when uh, uh, the prophet Elijah was battling with the prophets of Baal and they were calling and crying out and cutting themselves and there was no answer from heaven. It means something for God to show up when we call on him. So for him to remove his presence was a big deal. Hosea 5 and 6 says, with their flocks and their herds, shall, shall, excuse me, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will find, um, um, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. Cost them their position as being able to minister to the Lord. It cost them his presence to, that he would be in the midst of them. It cost them his provision. Hosea 5 and 7, now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Times of feasting and celebration will now be replaced with times of judgment and captivity. It means something. But they rejected God. And all these things that he was providing freely because of his love for them, they are now without. We've gone from Hosea 3, 1, where the Lord says to Hosea, go again and love a woman who is loved by another man. Again, Homer and Gomer, excuse me, Hosea. Hosea and Gomer are a parable, right? They're a picture, an illustration of God and Israel for us. 
So because of their rejection, we go from go in love in Hosea 3.1 to Hosea 5, if you have your Bibles, verse 12. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Israel saw his sickness in Judah, his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the king, the great king. But he is not able to cure you or to heal your wound, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim and, I, uh, and, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I even I will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. This is God speaking of Israel. What would make God take such a drastic turn? from choosing Israel as his chosen, his treasured possession. What would make him go from go in love to I will be like rot, I will be like a lion, I will tear, I will carry off? It's love. He deeply loves Israel. He deeply loves us, so he is deeply hurt by their sin by their choice to reject him. He is deeply hurt by our sin when we reject him. Deeply hurt by their failure. Deeply hurt by our outright rebellion sometimes to come into order. Deeply hurt by our refusal to turn to him when he presses on us on account of our sin. When he can no longer feed us as lambs in a a broad field and has to hedge us in as stubborn heifers. He deeply loves us. I will tear you and go away. I will carry off and no one will rescue you. These are not the words of someone who couldn't care less, right? These are the words of a jealous God. These are the words of one who has been wounded by the one that they love. So what do we do with all of this? What do we do with our faults and our failures? Knowing that we, like Gomer, like Israel, have played the whore. And I love that they continue to use that word because it is graphic and it puts a picture in your head. And while we may not feel that way about our sin, that's how God feels about it. It's deeply offensive to him. Knowing that we have time and time again chosen to say, I know what's best, God. Knowing that when our best is contrary to what he says is good, our best is actually our worst. Knowing that each and every time we choose our way, we reject and wound him. So what do we do? Look with me at the last verse of chapter 5. It's verse 15. And we'll close focusing our hearts, not on our faults, not on our failures, but on his faithfulness. Hosea 5, verse 15. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and end their distress earnestly 
seek me. I will return again to my place until. Now God is saying, look, I am through. I'm done with you abusing me. I'm done with you going from lover to lover. I'm done with you refusing to turn to me. I'm done. I'm going to my place. But then as he walks out, he says, until you seek my face, you acknowledge your guilt, and in your distress, you come back to me. Yes, God is wounded by our sin. And yes, because of our sin and our refusal to accept him and to come back to him, he will withdraw himself. But he doesn't withdraw for our destruction. He withdraws for our distress. Again, parents, or even if you're not a parent, maybe you've been around here sometimes and you've seen a child that didn't quite get their way. You've seen them get so upset, so determined to get their way, so defiant that they just throw themselves in the floor. Again, you've probably seen it around here. Have you watched mom and dad try to encourage them to get in line? Come on, Johnny, don't do that. Right, they're they're trying to be nice because they're in public. They don't want to show out. They might try to bargain with them, right? Do you want a snack? If you get up, I'll give you a snack. Johnny is all out of character. He's all out on the floor. He may not even be crying, right? He may be be, uh, going through the motions of crying, but there are no tears in Johnny's face. Finally, mom or dad gets gets fed up asking, Asking didn't convince Johnny to change. Offering Johnny a snack didn't convince Johnny to change. And so mom or dad says, all right, that's it. I'm leaving. Now, again, if you've ever seen this, when mom and dad say, okay, that's it. I'm leaving. And they stay there. Does Johnny move? Johnny stays there on the floor, all out of character, right? Just saying the words doesn't move Johnny. But if they actually leave, what does Johnny do? (laughs) Johnny gets up and Johnny goes after mom and dad. Why? Because Johnny knows the source of his comfort is leaving. He could be in his distress and, and, and as long as mom and dad was there, he could be as distraught as he wanted to be. Because the source was still there. But when the source of Johnny's comfort leaves, the source of Johnny's provision leaves, Johnny has to go. Johnny has to get up and run after mom and dad. So he'll get up and he'll chase after them with all that he has because they are his refuge. They are his strong tower. He can run to them and find shelter and be safe. And so must we in our distress, when the father seems distant, when he feels like he's withdrawn himself, let us seek his face with our whole heart. Let us run after him because he is our refuge, our strong tower. Let us repent. Let us not reject God, it's, 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 it's kind of built into that fight or flight, right? We see Adam in the garden when he heard the voice of God, knowing that he was naked, he hid from God. 
That's what we want to do, but let us go contrary to that nature. Let us run to him, earnestly seeking his face. Let us plead with God that we might be found in God, that he might be found of us. The psalmist says, cast me not away from thy presence, O God, and take not the Holy Spirit from me. May we there in the presence of God find comfort, knowing that his faithfulness is greater than our faults and our failures. Family, God longs for an intimate, uninterrupted relationship with you. He'll go through great lengths to show that. As a matter of fact, he did go through great lengths to show that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Christ, as a propitiation for our sin, makes such a fellowship between a holy God and a hopeless or seemingly hopeless Israel possible. Because his sacrifice removes the guilt of our faults and our failure. And so there's nothing to separate us from getting up and running after him. God is the passionate and faithful lover of our soul. May we go and live as if we know we are loved. And may we demonstrate our love for him in repentance and confession and fellowship, even through our faults and our failures, knowing he's made provision for our faults and our failures, and knowing that even in our faults and our failures, that he is faithful to forgive. Amen? Amen. Let us pray.